Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by the Campfire Poetry Project. This is something I've been waiting for for a long time. Produced by Monticello Park Productions, the Campfire Poetry Project turns classic poems into short films. It breathes new life into the original text, and it recontextualizes these poems, revealing how the issues that the artists were concerned with back in the day are as relevant now as they ever were. If you're looking for short-form creative inspiration on the Internet, look no further. And know this, to create more of these works, the Campfire Poetry Project needs the help of artists and independent art lovers everywhere. To learn more, to see the films already produced, and to learn how to make a tax-deductible contribution to the project, please visit CampfirePoetry.com. That's CampfirePoetry.com. Hello, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. How is it going? What's happening? I'm in Los Angeles. I have Wayne Kustenbaum on the program today. He has a new essay collection out from Soft Skull Press. It's called Figure It Out. And I've been meaning to have Wayne Kustenbaum on this program for a long time. Finally got it together, made it happen, and it was great. So I'm excited to share that one with you in just a second. Today's episode is brought to you by Doubleday publisher of the new novel Pizza Girl by Jean Kyung Frazier. Pizza Girl is a wildly original coming-of-age story about a pregnant pizza delivery girl who becomes obsessed with one of her customers. Named a most anticipated book of 2020 by Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, L Time Magazine, People, BuzzFeed, Bustle, and more, the New York Times book review calls Pizza Girl fresh, funny, and bittersweet. Pizza Girl by Jean Kyung Frazier, available now from Doubleday. Go get it. All right. Happy Sunday, everybody. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Wayne Kustenbaum. His new essay collection is called Figure It Out. It's available now from Soft Skull Press. Here he is, folks. This is Wayne Kustenbaum. In the process of writing, I will genuinely suddenly remember vividly a dream, and the atmosphere of that dream will saturate the room. And if I follow that dream... I'm reawakened to the uh, an, a more urgent sense of why I'm writing in the first place and what I have to say. 
like I know at the at the end of the essay in my collection, the end of the essay, no more tasks. I I think at the very beginning and maybe the very end of the essay, I talk about uh, a dream of a senile woman playing Schubert, and I you know when that occurs suddenly, I say, well, wh- you know, here I'm writing an essay about writing or whatever. Why would I talk about a sort of unpleasant, maybe nightmarish dream? Um, but I let it I let it happen because I get more excited. And then I think that if I'm excited, I will say things that are more valuable and maybe in a weird way, more universal and less personal if we're striving for universality rather than idiosyncratic, mere autobiography. So is it accurate to say that you're an intuitive writer and that you don't do a lot of preconceiving or outlining? Yes, <laughs> it's a fair thing to say. I don't do a lot of outlining, except that there are books and projects where I do a vast amount of outlining. For my Andy Warhol biography, I I did, I mean, I didn't even begin to write it until I had really done all the research and the interviews and had read everything and seen everything um, and then started making maps. And for each chapter, I made elaborate outlines Um because it was a short book and it had to go in order. It was a, a biography. I, I do make outlines, but they're, they're often outlines for the third or fourth or the fifth or the sixth draft, not for the first draft. Interesting. Um, with with certain exceptions. But I've, I've um, each book is its own, has its own ecology of germination. So it's, it would be wrong to say I don't outline. I certainly – one thing I do, um, and I did say for my book Humiliation, is I make a list um, of maybe like the eight things that I really want to mention. And when I mention – and I figure out which I'm going to mention first. And then after I've talked about that first thing, it's clear to me which I want to talk about second, third, fourth, and fifth. And then I'm stuck. And maybe I'm a little more tired and I have three left. And maybe I'll cut one or I'll say this one's going to go in the next chapter. But so I have a, a kind of a shopping list of topics. I got that. That makes sense to me. I, I think like having some idea and putting down some notes on paper makes sense to me. I Where I find myself sort of floored is when people write these like elaborate 60 page outlines of their novel and you know and they're they're like incredibly detailed like the 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 outline itself is almost a work of art <laughs> yeah now there's for, if if it turns you on to do that do it and if you if you're if you're um if that's the way you work that's great but since i as i said work through the associate associations that happen um in the moment of writing and from the very words i'm using uh i need to be sensitive to the words i've Used and once I've written the first or second sentence of an essay, it it has a, a DNA now that is independent of any preconceptions I had. Gets rewritten. The codes, the the genetic codes, get scrambled the second I actually put words down. So what about? I want to ask you about this uh, this concept of the punctum. Am I pronouncing that right? Absolutely. Okay, because this uh, this uh, appears and figured out uh, in the context of porn, but it is something that you've played with in um, other books of yours as well. I I, I say this having read about uh, about the books. Like I was reading some uh, essays about you and interviews with you prior to the conversation, and this is a is this a Roland Barthes uh, 
Like, is this an idea of his? Am I am I getting yes. this right? Yes. Yeah, it is. He taught in, in his book *Camera Lucida*, um, or *La Chambre Claire*, and a short essay on photography that's quite canonical. And people, so pe- people who study photography and art history love this essay because of its notion of the punctum. He says he kind of divides the the world into the punctums and studiums or studia and the studium is the, let's say if you're talking about a photograph the studium is the stuff that is intended or obvious that's the history implied by the photograph it's all the stuff that's on meaning wise on the surface of the photograph and the punctum is the incidental detail that grabs you that pricks you he says at least in richard howard's English translation, the detail that uh, surprises and stuns you and makes you skid away from the ideas that you might have had about the photograph. And so I and a lot of other people have imported this notion or exported this notion of the punctum to refer to the riveting and maybe impertinent or inconsequential detail in in an, in an artifact of any kind that um, triggers a uh, uh, an atopical wandering train of thought, maybe a visceral reaction that you maybe a reaction that's uncanny and that you can't put into words. Well, and I think that when I spoke earlier about my style of um, or you said that I'm a careener or a, 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 so I like um, juxtapositions, it it uh, it has to do with maybe being always like my dog self is always like sniffing around for the punctum. Well, and I think too, in the in the context of porn, what made me laugh is that, you know, you're talking about like a detail. Like if you're watching porn, which pretty much everybody has, you've obviously got the studio, <laughs> which is the 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 porn stars, you know, but having sex on screen. But then there's always like the oh wow, that's a weird picture on the wall, or like is that clean? Like are these people sanitary? <laughs> like, yeah. I'm having trouble with this uh, photograph of the, you know, is that somebody's mother in a frame on the nightstand? You know, like these kinds of things that you notice. Um, it, it It's something that I think I've been through psychologically before, not just watching porn, but a, a million times and I didn't have a word for it. So I appreciated that essay and it made me laugh because it's the kind of thing that we do need a word for. We need to all be talking about the punctum. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And the, the porn punctum is a really useful idea because, again, like with porn or, porn, you know, even like a, a libidinal image of it, a seductive image of any kind, you're supposed to think that the nudity or the, the, the fleshly stuff is what you're there for and is exciting. But maybe, yeah, maybe it's this funny, weird kind of Holiday Inn painting askew on the wall. And maybe that's more erotic in a sick way. <laughs> or I'm like, you know, if it's like filmed somewhere in L.A., I'm always like, what neighborhood are they in? Like, I'm looking out the window. Yep. Like, is that the valley? Where are they? You know. Um, so where are you from originally? I'm from San Jose, California. No shit. Yeah. Couldn't you tell? No, I had no idea. I had no idea. I literally had no clue. And I was uh, I was trying to guess. So born and in, in, raised in San Jose. Yes. And what was the, uh, like, do you, I mean, how many generations back do you go? How did your family wind up there? Oh, not very many, no generations at all. My, um, my parents moved there because my father who, um, got a job at San Jose State College um, before I was born. And so my parents moved from the East Coast to San Jose, California, and then had their kids, of which I am the second. Right. Okay. So you... 
what did your dad teach at San Jose State? Philosophy. Okay. Okay. So you uh, write about this in uh, the essay collection uh, that you are the second and that your el- your eldest brother was stillborn, correct? Well, the... the um... I said, yeah, I guess the way I constructed in the essay, yeah. The, the, I, I mean, I do have an older brother, a living older brother, but I'm saying that if I were to really be pure about all the births, I'm the third. I'm You're, the third birth. Oh, that's right. Okay, yeah. So I guess like a question, because that's a pretty heavy thing to go through for your parents. Um, and I'm curious to know like how much of a, an impact you felt from that as a child. And if or, or if the the power of it uh, am i overestimating it or is it something that you understood uh more distinctly in retrospect when you got older and looked back i would say the latter uh older and look back i don't know i don't know if i was really conscious of it when i was a kid or knew about it um but i something i've been very interested in is the way that we have um in our lives kinds of feeling states that are consequences of things that our parents might have experienced or even our grandparents might have experienced but that we are not that are not part of our conscious memories a lot of historians and psychologists have talked about this phenomenon of uh, phenomenon and given it various names a kind of generational memory um, but it's it's something that sense of a kind of an after image of the experience of my ancestors is something that grows that that aura of the experience of my ancestors grows more and more vivid for me the older I get and I imagine even at a certain point that aura comes to dominate consciousness like at the end of your life if you live a long life maybe you are really living with the ghosts of your parents and the I mean the ghosts that their parents lived with yeah, I'm, I kind of feel that way too. Like lately what I've been thinking to myself is that conscious, like, and I'm going to sound a little crazy maybe, but I feel like consciousness is poorly understood. I don't think any, you know, I don't think we cl- have a completely clear idea of exactly what it is, but um, where I stand on it now is that I feel like it's something like gravity. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily of the mind in a closed way. I think it might flow through the mind somehow, but I feel like... I feel like it is um, like some sort of force in the universe or some sort of, I don't know, I don't have a language for it. Um, And maybe I sound completely crazy, but I think contained within this notion um, is something that could be tied to what you're saying. Like, I do think that, um, you know, generationally we, obviously like in our DNA, we carry with us um, our, the, the people who came before and they're somewhere in there like right i don't know how i'm not i'm not a geneticist but i think like uh, there's got to be some imprint or some echo in there and then if my whole theory on my very vague theory on consciousness holds any uh water then they might live there too maybe we're you know getting it from that place as well i think in that regard i think a lot about trees I think a lot about, you know, plants and flowers in general, and I wonder whether, to what extent, I mean, I don't wonder as a scientist, but just as as a poet, I wonder, um, do, do, does the tree have one consciousness of itself, or does each branch have its own uh, set of 
feelings or whatever? Does each leaf have a feeling? Um, does maybe only the whole grove of trees have a sense of consciousness? And I don't mean that I think that they have, you know, thoughts the way we have thoughts, but they move and breathe and uh, germinate and go through processes so that they're they're certainly living and there is a difference between being a dead tree and an alive tree so it's it's the question is where does the consciousness reside in this not human thing and i i mentioned in in the the title essay of figure it out i mentioned this thought experiment about a fly where i say you know i killed a fly and then i wonder is it is the consciousness of that fly separate from other flies or is or I wonder something like this like and I think yeah you would say that fly has its own whatever kind of rudimentary or whatever it has some uh, um, sensation of the world around it if not a sensation of itself um, but we don't think when we kill a fly that we're killing an individual fly we think it's yet another in a kind of lifelong uh, slaughter of flies I don't know if this it relates to what you're saying, but it does. I think it's the idea of whether thoughts reside in a, bo- a separate body or whether thoughts are ambient and residual. Yeah, and traces in the atmosphere. It's like yeah, it's like almost like the brain is like an antenna through which, you know, it's like picking up consciousness. If like the brain is like the TV and consciousness is like the television signal or something. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it just feels it's, it feels mysterious to me. Also, because I li- I care a lot about music, and when I'm listening to a singer, especially a singer who's dead, and I'm actually receiving the sound waves and the full or a, a replica of a full sonic acoustic experience of that singer's um, body and resonance chamber. That's alive. I'm the the singer is alive. Yeah, I don't doubt it. I mean, same thing with literature. You know, that's like a way to uh, to capture somebody or capture yourself. I, I feel the same way reading a dead uh, author. And yeah, I uh, I guess like uh, another place to to go is um, like deeper into childhood and to this idea of you as uh, it seems like a very um, I don't know, like live, like live-minded, uh, intellectually curious kid. You'd refer to yourself in the book as being teased as as a what do they call you? They called you question bomb. Is that right? They were yes. like a play on yes. words with your last name. So, well, why don't you tell tell me a little bit about what you were like as a kid? Oh God, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that actually in an interview. It's a fun question. I was um, I was very little. I was small for my age. I was always the smallest boy in the class until, and I was conscious of it. I think I was more friends with girls, maybe because of that factor. I just didn't like boys that much. But I think in fourth or fifth grade, there were there were suddenly a couple of other boys who were my size. One was Portuguese and one was Italian whatever. And they made a big impression on me because we were the three shortest boys. Um, and I still have a sense of deep affinity with men who are exactly my height or even a little shorter. So that that's one part of me. But as a result of that, maybe, or it's a kind of being maybe not noticeable physically, I talked a lot. I always talked too much was the feedback I got from 
everybody. And, you know, certainly there was a time, I think, again, by fourth grade, maybe where I would have to have my desk separate from the other kids because I talked too much and out of turn and I was maybe a bit of a disruptive presence. I think you would probably say now I would probably have been given Ritalin or something like that, though I don't I don't know what I don't know either whether that was historically the thing that was done then with kids that talked to that, that you know, were too too much like a jumping bean. Uh, but I was definitely like that kind of kid, kind of in uncontainable, irrepressible. I was also a little um, sexually preoccupied, I think. And I don't know whether it's just I talked about it more than other kids did, but I certainly felt that by really even by first grade, I had a, a very a set of active research interests having to do with, I would have said at that point, nudity rather than sexuality. But I was um, very curious about that side of things and considered it a major investigative quest. And I returned to that childhood prurience a lot in my writing tonally. And I, in a way, um, you could say I am loyal to that child in my adult writing by always trying to keep alive the sense of um, kind of investigative fervor that I felt then. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, it's, it's, interest, it's interesting that you say that because I think in the popular imagination, especially as we get older and we sort of forget our youth, I think as like a shorthand, we always think of ourselves getting interested in sex and um, starting to investigate those kinds of things with the onset of adolescence. But that's not accurate. Like I think back to my own childhood and, and my buddies and I in elementary school, we were definitely curious and interested in trying to get our hands on Playboy and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Not because necessarily we were sexual beings, but because we were just we knew that it was important and we knew that we weren't supposed to necessarily know. And I think that's sometimes all kids need to hear before they get off into, uh, you know, exploration. So it's cool to hear you say that because it starts much younger. And I was also very interested in movies when I was a kid. And that was like the other research interest I had. One was sexuality and nudity. And the other was, was movies. Cause this was, um, way before VCRs or anything. And that if going to the movies was something I could only go to the movies if my parents took me, 
when I was really young and um, or I could see movies on TV, which was pre like there was UHF, but there were really only 12 channels. And there weren't, you know, there was a movie on at night. There were movies in the daytime. There was a show called Dialing for Dollars that I loved. It was in the Bay Area and they would show old movies during the day. And there was kind of a call in show. And I remember one of the first movies I ever saw in my life was a Betty Davis film called Dead Ringers. Or maybe it's called Dead Ringer. It's not the Cronenberg film. It's with Betty Davis playing two versions of herself split screen, like her twin sister. Um, and well, I don't. So and now I'm on on that. But I so I was really interested in in movies. And the movies were. I mean, movies are obviously uh, a very natural entree to be interested in sex. I think like when I was a kid. Why do I, I don't need this is such a specific and strange memory, but like this was at the onset of cable and HBO. And I, I don't know if you remember this, but there used to be like a, you know, in the TV guide or in whatever, whatever we used to like follow the schedule back then of what was going to play. They would have a little like they were a little like um, letter codes for what the movies contained. So if something was violent, it would have a V. If there was nudity, it would have an N, you know, this this kind of thing. And I very specifically remember my friends and I having a sleepover party and the entire like slumber party was designed around watching the Steve Martin movie, a man with two, Bra- the man with two brains, because apparently there were boobs in it. <laughs> and, uh, I have no idea that was, I don't know how that got into our heads. And, uh, I guess that, that brings up a natural question. Like when you reflect back on your youth and this particular interest that you had, um, in sex and this investigatory kind of project that you undertook as a child, can you trace it back to any point of origin? Was it a specific movie? Was it a specific moment? Was there something that set you off on this course or was it kind of more fractalized than that? Well, it's, it's really, it's, I so identify first with your watching this movie just cause you heard that it had female breasts in it, which re- had reminded me, I must say, of a, a moment. I remember there was a, a UHF station when I was a kid called Channel 36. I think it was from Sacramento or Stockton, and it was called The Perfect 36. And they tend to show like more adult movies. And I remember they were showing Brigitte Bardot's And God Created Woman one night. And I remember just trying to watch it and I couldn't, we couldn't get UHF in our household. But the the fervor with with which I would I awaited this screening of this telecast of And God Created Woman. But to answer your question more directly, the first movie I saw when I was probably in first grade was Mary Poppins. And it made such a huge impression on me because I didn't know at that point that movies weren't real. And I think that just the the visual experience of being in a movie theater and seeing this live action that was so colorful and seductive and British, um, it just like changed my life. I wanted to be Mary Poppins after that. I started signing my papers at school, Mary Poppins. I thought I could fly. I still have dreams of kind of flying with a Mary Poppins umbrella. Then the second movie I saw was My Fair Lady. And that was, that. so it just, it was, this, I would answer, it was specifically the atmosphere and the the, the chromatic voluptuousness of those films. Yeah, as you were saying that, I'm thinking to myself, uh, like, what a crush I had on Julie Andrews as a kid. Like, how could you not have a crush on Mary Poppins when you're in elementary And just imagine, imagine, Brad, if you saw it, uh, not if, since you're like 15 years or more younger than me, imagine if you saw it 
just when it came out, when there weren't the competing energies of, you know, seeing a rerun of Mary Poppins on TV, and you did, maybe didn't even know what a movie was, you know. And I mean, I, I don't. It, it, it's it's sort of like um, driving in a car in 1910. The sensation of Julie Andrews is this looming, um, clean, slightly punitive, but uh, refreshingly wry and uh, what's the word? Subversive, some kind of like an anti-disciplinarian. Yeah. Yeah. No, she was great. And I think too, like in its time, if you were seeing that film in the theater, technologically, that was kind of cutting edge. I mean, they didn't, they have like integrated animation and, uh, you talk about the color and everything, but that like as a visual experience, especially for a child that had to have been, um, pretty like I, like eye popping back then. Yeah. And then also musicals, which meant a lot to me when I was a kid, um, were still an available genre in movies, not a parodic genre, that somebody could just start singing in a movie and that it would signify maybe not that they were performing on stage or in a sound studio, but that that it was just a slightly enlarged way of living to sing to sing yourself. And as a, you know, as a grown up, I saw finally the umbrellas of Cherbourg, the Jacques Demy film, which was made kind of around the time of Mary Poppins, I think. And I remember as an adult seeing the umbrellas of Cherbourg and thinking that if I had seen that film when I was a kid and it had come out, my life would have been totally different. Wait, isn't that the, isn't that the the film where they sing every line and it's got, it's like, it's filmed in like incredibly bright colors like yes with Catherine Deneuve yes yeah I just watched that not too long ago and I couldn't believe it I was like wow where has this been this is a this is a uh, like a shocking visual film and then just this idea of everybody singing like literally I think every line of the film yeah and it's so it's chicer than um, Mary Poppins by far I mean it's just in terms of the the kind of the adultness of the emotional vocabulary in the film and the music is much more bittersweet and less sugary than Mary Poppins. It's just, it's a more sophisticated film and a weirder, more gay film too, since Jacques Demi was bisexual and, and I mean, that's a whole other story, but it's a, it's a more provocative and adult film. And, and it's also, as you said, it's all sung. There's no dialogue that's not sung. I wish there had been more movies made along the lines of the umbrellas of Cherbourg. It's kind of a road not taken. Yeah, well, I feel like there should be more musicals, period. Like, I I don't know. I, I guess when they're done well, to me, they're just like such great confections. And uh, I know people have complicated feelings about La La Land, but I remember seeing it and just being like, oh, yeah, somebody made a musical. It's like totally enjoyable to hear people sing and dance. And um, I don't know. I think there's like it's a it's an underexplored genre. I totally agree. I think it it demands a suspension of disbelief, but uh, so does poetry. Well, and it's also just like the height of show business to me. Like, right? Like, why don't we throw every, like it's like throwing the kitchen sink at it? Why why not have song and dance and um, yep. you know the acting and and everything like you know all in one place? It seems like a natural thing to do, but. Um, I don't know. I guess it's also maybe hard to pull off. You got to find the right mix and get the get the music right and everything else. But it seems like now would be a good time to be making musicals. The world could use them. Yeah, I think. Well, I, I probably you know TikTok is the home of a new form of musical. 
what the hell is TikTok? I don't even like I see clips of it, but like what, what it's like grandmother's dancing and oh no, what's well, anything I joined for a couple of weeks and then I posted a little thing that that got my account deleted because it had I mean it was just there was a, a picture of me in a speedo on it and whatever and then I like through Photoshop I cut out the bathing suit part of it and and had like a kind of color uh, optic surreal animation but it was still you didn't see any um, you know any genitals or anything so it was it was but I got bounced from TikTok so whatever so but in my little limited time it's mostly like 10 year olds and 13 year olds dancing and singing and doing making jokes and um doing gymnastic performances in front of their phones and what's it's kind of humiliating because you think that maybe if you're whatever you know i can say a couple of funny things i should get like a few likes you 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 know like a 10 year old who can do a somersault while like doing some kind of dance or whatever could have like thousands and thousands of likes and is a kind of superstar within tiktok and you have no there's just no hope for somebody like me well, I mean, I think like some of this, some of this stuff really vexes me, like the instinct that people or certain people seem to have for, uh, social media and for how to create either like, whether it's a tweet or it's a viral video, uh, that somehow gets that kind of uh, response, like certain people have a knack for it. And I, I, the, the, the challenge for me is not necessarily that I wish that I had the knack, but just that I can't define what the hell the knack is. Like, what is it that they're tapping into? Because uh, I look at some of these videos and I feel like there's a million of them, but this particular one, whatever the little minor variations on the theme there are within it, like whether it's a rhythmic thing or it's some sort of uh, infle- like vo- vocal inflection or facial expression, like makes it somehow more resonant. I don't know. Like, I, I just... Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I don't understand. I don't don't understand the dynamics. I mean, I always feel that it helps to be young and hot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's just where I'm going with my social media and what, you know, like Instagram or whatever. It just, it seems like there are, there are people who have like 10,000 likes for a picture and it's, you know, stunningly photographed body, not, you know, nothing too, you, I mean, there are Instagram has strict limits and censorship, but a lot, you know, it's flesh cells. That's not an original statement, but you know, it's so I, I, I think that's part of it. But I, lo- I actually really love using Instagram, and I love making little videos for Instagram. They're not viral, but they're fun to make. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's all that matters if you're enjoying it. And I think too, like, there's a way to use uh, Instagram where you can create. Like, I can. Like I'm not on Instagram, but I have had experiences where like I will go through a person's Instagram and it winds up, you know, it looks like you're flipping through their photo album and it's, uh, it can be strangely moving or, or like just really like interesting in a, um, like a voyeuristic kind of way where you're like, wow, what is going on in this person's life? So, so Brad, this is like, you should go look, go look. This is my request. Go look, not right now, but look at Wayne.Kustenbaum that's my Instagram handle and watch some of my little soliloquies. Okay. What are you just giving us, giving a speech to the camera kind of thing? Yeah, but they're, they're really more complicated. I edit them with Photoshop and other apps, green screen apps, and they're kind of like little umbrellas of Cherbourg esque, um, monodramas of me giving, uh, 
little bits of spiel and advice. I use actors sometimes. It's it's a kind of filmmaking. It's it's in a way the most um, satisfying resumption of my childhood dream of being immersed in movies that I felt it, it, it's a really deep reconnection to childhood cinematic mania for me. Okay. So let's, yeah, let's get back to your childhood. You see Mary Poppins, you uh, are obsessed with uh, sex and it's like an investigative project of your elementary school years. Um, and you like, did you have like ambitions at that point? Were you starting to think, think to yourself, like, I want to make movies or I want to be an artist. Was that something that was in your mind back then? I think I, I know I wanted to be a star, <laughs> you know, I, mean, I didn't know what I would be a star at. I think I, I thought really it was only being a movie star. And so I, th- I think I, I wanted to be like Barbara Streisand. I wanted to be discovered, but I couldn't sing. Um, so I don't, and I was in plays when I was a kid, I was in something like San Jose junior theater, maybe till eighth grade. I was in these plays and I really loved that. I always wanted to get the lead. A couple of times I did get the lead. I was in a play called from rags to riches, a kind of Horatio Alger thing. And I was the street urchin urchin named Ned who becomes rich. That was my biggest part. Um, so, so I, I don't know. I, I really wanted to be discovered by a talent scout, but it was very ill-formed, a very ill-formed ambition. And then I, I think maybe a little, my next ambition was to be a musical, a classical musician and a star as a classical musician, which was also a very misguided fantasy and one that I didn't really pursue all that seriously. I was a very serious classical pianist, but never good enough or steady enough um to ever have a hope of being a concert pianist but it it was i think until college my major dream interesting yeah because you're kind of a renaissance man you you write you paint and you play the piano yeah well it depends what renaissance i mean that's a nice i love i will accept the sweet designation of renaissance man but uh, it's I, i always feel like there's only um i'm very flawed in many of the things I do. But I mean, at least you're doing them. I mean, you know, at least to be able yeah. to sit down and play the piano, like somewhat, uh, coherently. Like I, if I sit yeah. down to play piano, I'm playing like chopsticks or Mary had a little lamb. Like I would love to be able to play any instrument, uh, with some degree of proficiency. That's gotta be a nice like outlet. Yeah, it is. I love playing the piano. Just right before this conversation, I sat down at the piano and I played a little piece by Alexander Scriabin that I had never played. I think it's called. It was called something like "Fragile Fragility," "Fragilité," uh, and it was so beautiful. I mean, not the way I played it, but it wasn't that hard. So I could, and I didn't do that, make that many wrong notes. And Scriabin has this very particular harmonies that are composed of fourths. And they create this almost post-tonal sense of spooky, uh, I don't know what to call it. It's it's a little bit like um, what would be the sort of harmonics, harmonies that would be in the background of a science fiction film. They signify seance and the occult. So do you read music? I do. Okay, so you can just put a piece of music in front of you and, and play. It depends how difficult it is. It, I could play it at a very slow tempo, yes. Wow. And so how did you, like, when did you get into that as a kid? 
I started taking I, I started playing the trumpet in fourth grade with band and I took private lessons pretty much right away and played the trumpet until the end of high school and was in a youth symphony, San Jose Youth Symphony that traveled to Taiwan and Japan and Mexico. So I did that. I was never that good at trumpet, but I could some days be very good, but some days not. And and then I started taking piano lessons also around fifth grade. And I always liked the piano much more. And when I was in ninth grade or eighth or ninth grade, I just that's when I decided I wanted to be very, very serious at the piano. And it became my obsession. Hmm. Were you a happy kid? No, I wouldn't say I was an interested kid. I wasn't an unhappy kid to the extent of like, I don't think torpor was my condition. And I think of unhappiness as being a kind of torpor. But um, I was always, always overstimulated and anxious, but I don't, I was always worried and always afraid of the future. Hmm. Do you know why? Hmm. Well, I was afraid I would somehow, I was doomed that I would be in trouble or doomed that every, that the things I needed to accomplish or to do were um, insurmountable obstacles and that there was a, I was, yeah, always afraid of the, in a way, the next assignment. I was going to say, you were a really good student. I mean, you went on to Harvard and um, you're a very well-educated human being. You had to have been getting good grades and you had to have been, that had to have been important to you on some level. It was very important to me, but I also worried about it a lot. I was not an easy student. I didn't take it lightly. I studied very hard and everything always seemed very hard to me. I still remember almost in a nightmarish way once studying for a history exam in either junior high or high school. And it probably wasn't even that important an exam, but I, re you know, we were kind of responsible for three chapters of the history book. And I remember just trying to memorize all the things in it without any sense of what are the important things or, you know, just so I had this like over thorough way of studying that was exhausting but effective i guess effective but i think there would probably have been swifter more intuitive ways to work were your parents pushing you yeah not in a way that i that i um remember with negative feelings i'm grateful that i that education was valued as highly as it was and grateful that i was able to go to college and all that. Um, but I don't think playfulness was what I experienced the most. And I think that my adult emphasis on play and um, the, really the subject of this book, Figure It Out, is how to be more playful. That comes from a wish to give play the biggest priority rather than work. But I did, you know, to return to our earlier conversation, I do think that these investigative projects of mine about nudity and, and movies were play. Interesting. So that was where, that's where it lived in your childhood. Yes. Did it ever get you into trouble? Like when it comes to this, especially when it comes to the nudity stuff, like did your folks find out about it? Was there, were there ever issues around sexual identity or... Uh, anything like that that came into play as an adolescent in a way that was... I wish I wish there had been I really wish I had had a more sordid childhood but I I, I would didn't have sex until I was a freshman in college 
um, which seems kind of late. Um, it didn't even really occur to me that I could or that I would knew that I knew I never thought one could have sex with other boys. I didn't really concede. I didn't know that was not something that I ever looked for or thought possible. Um, so I was not a, an active sexual being in, in, with, with other people until college. So, um, so sexuality didn't get me in trouble in that way, but I was, um, I don't know. It's a comp, it's a, those are intimate and complicated questions. What about, I mean, like, it sounds like you were, I mean, you were obviously very studious and very serious, not only as a academic student, but also as a student of music and piano. Um, it, like as a social creature as a kid, like, did you have good friendships in San Jose at, in high school or were you so consumed with work that it, you felt that, that part of your life kind of atrophy? I probably the latter, probably atrophied. I had, I did have friendships. I had, um, a few good friends. I had various friends in, at various moments. I think, I mean, my, I was probably in elementary school had m the most in a way because at that point in elementary school you, you're not serious about anything you don't have that kind of homework you know I was there was more playfulness and I think that it was by the time I was in junior high that I became more academically serious and probably more reclusive and had fewer friends but I did you know one of my friends from seventh grade on is still a very very close friend of mine uh, the writer Cliff Chase was a really wonderful writer. He wrote a great novel called Winky hmm. um, and a great memoir called The Tooth Fairy. And we're still close friends. And we made Super 8 movies together in seventh grade. So I did have I did have friendships and I had fr musical friends, but it was not not the kind of friendships, the consuming friendships that I started having in college. And then what about writing? Like you, you get to college, you go to Harvard. So you get into Harvard, which must have been exciting. Um, but then you make the decision to fly across the country. I don't know how big of a decision it felt like to you back then, or was it a no-brainer? But uh, that's a big move and a big transition. And I'm curious to know, like, at what point you started thinking about literature? Instantly. I think really instantly, the second I got there. I think the, the summer before college, I... There was just maybe certain experiences I had of a very intense falling in love experience the summer before college. For really the most intense falling in love with a girl that I had ever experienced and kind of just deep, deep infatuation. It wasn't sexual, really, or certainly there was no sexual enactment, but it was really a very smoldering identification and passion and I think that gave me a sense that I, I remember thinking now I know what it would be like to wish to write literature because I think I had the idea because I was good at English or maybe my English teachers liked my papers it was something I felt people told me I could do um, as opposed to singing say which nobody ever said oh you should sing more um, but people did say I should write more so I had the idea that I could be a, or that that was a thing one could do but I didn't know why or how but but by the time I got to college I had this idea that I had something in me that was my material and um, right away in college I 
I, I took a fiction writing class freshman year as a kind of composition, expository writing class that happened to be fiction. And the very first story I ever wrote for the very first assignment was such a, an immersive experience and such a way of being in contact with my memories and my real soul that I instantly thought this is what I want to do with my life. And I started reading. I took a course on modernist poetry and started reading early 20th century poetry and fell in love with that instantly as well. And my whole uh, whole view of myself, a whole aesthetic and um, spiritual um, platform got very quickly established almost overnight. And did you have like really influential teachers or, or peers that you were in school with that really made an impact? Yeah, I had a group of I had wonderful friends who were writers and uh, transformative friendships with these fellow writers. And these uh, some of these people are still my uh, my good friends. Um, and I had I was always very inspired by my English classes. I had a wonderful um, writing teacher that that first fiction writing writing teacher Cynthia Rich was very permissive and inspiring and rigorous. And I think she, I remember her saying in response to this first story, which had a lot of problems in it as a piece of writing, but I remember her saying that she said to me that the material was very rich, like that the material was powerful. And I had this sense that I had something called material. I didn't have language yet, but I had material. So what was the material? It was my family. And you were willing to go there early. Because I think like, I, I still do this, but I feel like so often writer friends of mine, or even, you know, I'll have conversations with guests on this show. We have a tendency sometimes to avoid. Uh, like you'll write around the thing that you should be writing about. Uh, you can trick yourself pretty easily, or at least some people can. Um, but you went in story number one, straight to your family. That to me feels like uh, a unique move for an 18 year old freshman in college, though. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. It's, it just seems like usually the 18 year old would try to write way outside the bounds of his or her experience or, uh, would feel some sort of com compulsion or compunction to, to make up something fantastic. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think we have a tendency yeah. to, to underestimate the stuff of our immediate, experience as being worthy of the page, but it doesn't sound like that was the case for you. No, it wasn't at all. I was very clumsy with the fundamentals of fiction and the creating of characters and the moving ahead of action and even constructing vivid sentences. There was a lot that was clunky in my writing all through college. Um, very unsophisticated, really. But I was quite candid in some ways, in the kinds of things I wrote about, with the exception of sexuality, which is a big exception, I think. I Actually, that very first uh, semester of fiction writing, I did write one gay story. I wasn't really gay yet. I only became gay at the end of college, if that's what I became. Um, but I did write, I think my first story that I wrote freshman year was about my parents. The second was about my piano teacher and playing the piano. And the third maybe was about Jewishness. No, the third was about being gay. And the fourth was about being Jewish. 
And it was only the fourth story that be- began to show some kind of promise. I remembered my teacher said, uh, the first four pages of this show what you will be able to do, but the rest of it, not. Interesting. Do you know what distinguished the, the story that was focused on uh, your Jewishness? Like what distinguished it from the others? I think it's, um, it was the, I never thought of this before. The first three stories were about my relation with people, my parents age, like a piano teacher or a a parent. And the third story began with, uh, me and people, my age. So it was, I think more, uh, there was something more maybe adult or more real in the world about the point of view from which the story sprung and did you were you practicing uh like judaism as a child did you get uh, bar bar mitzvah any of that stuff no i think i went to temple sometimes as a kid i took a couple of years of hebrew school we yeah, we did some jewish things but i didn't get bar mitzvah i decided not to oh and you had the choice i did have the choice i'm happy to say i don't i don't think it was necessarily the right choice but it wasn't um, – I, I don't remember it being there, – there was nothing like a battle at all. Hmm. Were your parents pretty chill? Like were they pretty liberal-minded? Uh, About like were... that, yeah, absolutely. My, my mother's parents were very adamant about things like bar mitzvahs, but they lived in Brooklyn. Hmm. And though they kept a tight watch over our household and were my grandfather in particular very concerned about the forms of assimilation that were beginning to happen um they themselves were pretty secular jews at that point was he were your grandparents like what was the first generation to come to the states from my mother's side it would be my grandparents parents okay so my great-grandparents got it okay yeah, I was just, it's funny. I was just reading some Philip Roth and of course all of that is like New York, Newark, uh, mm-hmm. Judaism. And like, there's a lot of generational stuff and, uh, the character, like the grandparent characters in that book and the book in question were very concerned about assimilation. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, I think it actually translates across culture. I mean, it doesn't necessarily even have to be a Jewish family, but I think you just see this happening generationally especially in families where immigration is in the not too distant past, uh, how, how fast things can move generationally and how far a family can get from its point of origin. You know, I can imagine how that can be disorienting for somebody. Yeah. I was pretty desperate to assimilate. Well, I think that a lot of times, uh, like I think of my dad, um, my grandfather, like my paternal grandfather was a first generation American and grew up in an Italian immigrant community in South Louisiana at a time when, um, you know, Italian immigrants were um, not treated kindly or at least had a history of not being treated kindly. And the kids weren't even allowed to speak Italian. Like it was important to assimilate because they didn't want to put them in a situation where they could be uh, otherized or discriminated against, you know, but then... I think sometimes there's a competing interest to try to preserve cultural tradition and to try to make sure that things don't get lost in the shuffle of assimilation, you know, so there's that tension. 
And it's so tra- Italian is such a beautiful and sophisticated language with such a wealth of culture and really pedigree behind it. It's one of the grand edifices of humankind. The, the notion that anyone would be ignorant enough to say you shouldn't speak Italian. I know. I know. I'm, and I'm so pissed. I'm like, shit, I wish I could speak Italian. I wish this was like a tradition that had been passed down. <laughs> I have Duolingo on my phone and it sends me like a little – I have an, the Italian one and it, I – Every day at like six o'clock, it says you haven't done your Italian lesson because before the pandemic, I was going to go to Italy at the beginning of June for a couple of weeks to northern Italy. And I've been to Italy several times and I've taken Italian, but I'm not I really can't speak it. And so I was going to brush up on Italian, but I um, I let it just kind of go fallow once the pandemic started and I knew I wasn't going to go to Italy, especially northern Italy. That's where the I know know. was. Um, okay, so you are at Harvard. You are um, like from basically the, the moment you touch down. It sounds like you were, you know, already on the path to becoming a writer. You said that you came out or became gay, if that's what you are, at the end of college. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after you leave college, like where do you go, and how does your career begin? Well, I would say for just to, to, to amend that one bit is that I may have had a great wish to be a writer when I was in college and all that, but I didn't necessarily have the sense that I was good enough to be a writer. In fact, I had a distinct sense that I was probably not um, or didn't have a lot of signs that I um, was a natural at it. I never felt like a natural writer in that way. So, but And maybe because I had a sense of that that I really needed to – become a better writer I I went right away to get a master's in fiction writing so I went to Johns Hopkins for a year-long program in fiction writing is that Roland Barth that, uh, that John Barth John Barth that's right okay so that's where that's where he was and then um how did that how did it go was that the right place you had a good time <laughs> I wouldn't say that exactly I mean it was great being an adult and being out of college um and it was really fun being in Baltimore, a new city. And I, there was there was much that was in, kind of intoxicating about it. But I, it was it felt very competitive, and I felt not very good at fiction writing, and felt um, like a lot of. Str- I think it was. Um, I remember always being frustrated with my stories. Gradually, I think by the second semester, feeling like I understood more the kind of thing I wanted to write. And writing a couple of things the second semester that felt vastly, vastly better than the stuff I had written first semester. But I think I was still on the wrong track in some way aesthetically. I did not have the right things in my ear or memory, the kinds of – yeah, stylistically I was barking up the wrong tree. Well, I can, yeah, I feel, I I feel like I can relate to that. And I think when that happens for me, and maybe it's different for you, but – it's often a problem of reading. Like it's just haven't read the right stuff. <laughs> uh, was there a book that you read or was there a teacher who kind of pointed you in the right direction that made your sense of possibility for your own work expand or def- define itself? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that, well, I would say in college on my own, uh, the, the, writer, the writers that I didn't study but that I read that formed me were Adrian Rich and Frank O'Hara. Um. And in in when I was at at Johns Hopkins, I think I was made aware of 
Donald Barthelmay. I think it might have been John Barth who pointed his existence out to me or whatever. And Donald Barthelmay was the first really good stylistic influence. I mean, other actually, that's not true. There were plenty of good influences. But Donald Barthelmay really set me up um, about writing in fragments and writing really sharp, trying to write really sharp sentences that fit together like little pieces of a puzzle and that maybe didn't make exact sense one after another, but had a kind of shock value each by itself. But it wasn't, I think, until I started, um, I don't know what the, I'm trying to think of if anybody, it, I think of it as when I went to graduate school and moved to, to, to get a PhD at Princeton and moved to New York in 1984 and started reading more ambitiously European literature, French literature in particular in translation and literary theory and gender theory or feminist criticism, which was all very new to me at the time that I and became, was also then more out as a gay person and began to write more explicitly from a gay point of view that things came alive for me. And this was when this is like what period of time are we in? It's 19, about 1984, 1985. I think my writing re- absolutely changed radically at that time and became um, close to the way it is. And where, and you were living, you were getting your PhD at I Princeton. I was living in New York. But you were living yeah, in Manhattan. I was living in New York. In the 80s. Right. Yep. That was like, wasn't that like the last, I, I never lived in New York, uh, which I regret, but it wasn't the, like the 80s were sort of like the last golden age, were they not? Or is it, is that a mischaracterization? Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe the last golden age was even earlier or a little later, but they were pre- there was a lot of really great stuff in New York, bookstores, movie theaters, street stuff. Um, there was a lot of really great stuff going on in New York and it was very exciting and very just in terms of I think it still is in many ways just a, a kind of um, pulse of um, learning on the street how to be alive by looking at other people and interacting with them that just that kind of in a way pedagogy of the streets yeah well just the human energy like uh, you know like uh, the pedestrian the pedestrian experience of being in New York is something that as, as a person living in Los Angeles, I really envy because, you know, yeah. here, I guess I don't envy it now amid the pandemic, <laughs> <laughs> but I think in normal times uh, or whatever, you know, constitutes normal times, I think that um, having that level of interactivity is just so stimulating and there you, I get so much energy from it when I'm there. I, I don't know. It seems like something that would potentially exhaust me if I lived there. Um, just because I would be overstimulated, but I guess you get used to it. Yeah, and I would say also to, to answer something you said a bit earlier, to just to reaffirm it, when you said that growing as a writer is, or, or not not being yourself as a writer means just that you haven't found the right people to read, that is so true. That's really it. Mm. That it's it's um, if you read the people that are right for you, you will know what you want to do. And if, but if you just have a notion that you want to be a better writer, well, there are a lot, you could read Dickens and get to be a, you know, Dickens was a good writer. Dickens may teach you nothing. It's great to read Dickens, but it, it isn't going to help you do the thing that you can do that might have a little originality to it. Well, and I think if you, I, I think of your work and, you know, just as an example of something 
that I think would qualify as being more idiosyncratic than say somebody who's like really interested in writing uh, and and reading genre fiction. You know, if like if you love horror and writing horror fiction is your thing, that's fantastic. And there's going to be uh, a very obvious like precedent, I think, uh, out there for you to sort of dig into. Like you're going to have you know you're going to have a pretty clear idea of what you need to read. Um, to set you on your course, but for somebody who works in the vein that you work in, and I can relate to this as well, like it's not always obvious where the books are. It's not always <laughs> obvious what the, you know, it's like a following a breadcrumb trail. It's not easy to see all the time. And it's, it comes to me and I imagine it came to you and continues to as a great relief when you find that book that sort of crystallizes your thinking or, um, gives you a sense of possibility, you know, and a sense of direction in your own work and, and lets you know that you're not crazy. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, and I think that, you know, in terms of teachers or whatever, I did, I studied um, a bit with Richard Howard, the poet and translator at Princeton. Um, I audited courses, they were for undergraduates, as I recall, undergraduate creative writers, but I audited them and befriended him, and he was one of the first people to take my poetry seriously, really very from the very beginning, um, and made me feel – he had a, an ability that he has with many younger poets, I think, to make me feel that I was a poet, that I had a voice. And it was really through the literature, the French literature that he translated that I came to many of my discoveries. It was – um, you know, Roland Barthes, he's the great translator of Roland Barthes, Gide, others, you know, I think it was a kind of, you could call it an intertext that, that Richard Howard's translations had a very big hand in that, um, involved a kind of combination of the private life and intellectual inquiry. He didn't translate Colette, but Colette typifies that quality of intimate investigation, personal but veiled. Intimate investigation. I feel it's like yes. that. That's like the running theme throughout your life. <laughs> it's all I care about. I do like the word investigation. It makes this because it dolls up or dresses up uh, simple nosiness, perhaps. It makes it also. It, it makes it see the word investigation makes it seem okay that you'll never find the answer. Because it makes the process seem like the valorous endeavor. I like it because it evokes bewilderment. You know, I think that that to me is like a, that's like the frame of mind or the perspective that I'm always trying to remind myself to stay in because uh, it feels most accurate, you know? So if you're investigating, you're, you're bewildered and yeah. at least on some level. And if you're not, then maybe you think you have the answers. And if you think you have the answers, I would posit that you're probably wrong <laughs> or that there's, there's more to it. I was going to say there's a, a, a bit in my essay and figure it out, the essay, My Masculinity Remix, where I talk about learning to become educated by dizziness, which seems exactly, it's very similar to what you're saying about bewilderment. How so? You know, you would say like if you if to be made dizzy is an unpleasant experience and don't we want to be on solid earth? Don't we want to be grounded and centered and with our full equilibrium? Dizziness means you're not going to be at your best. But, you know, maybe 
the experience of dizziness is, is an experience of being connected to plurality and to diversity and variance, variousness, um, more things than the mind can handle at once, more sensations. So a kind of um, a hyperesthesia, a word I like, like like you're, it's the op, it's the way the opposite of anesthesia. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Like listening to you, I'm thinking to myself, like we can't. I don't think we can function as human beings if we put all of our eggs in the basket of investigation and bewilderment and mystery. Like you do have to live on practical terms in your day to day life, and um, I think that probably for most of us anyway, and I would count myself among this group. Um, you know, you can kind of get swept up in the day to day of existence and you just get like, I can just get wrapped up in the most tedious bullshit of life and can convince myself that it's so important. And then every once in a while, you know, you have this moment where I start to think of things in cosmic terms, or I just get, you know, that wider perspective, uh, just kind of like a stark reminder of my own, uh, limitations, like intellectually in terms of just understanding what the hell's going on. Uh, and it comes to me as such a great relief, but I guess you have to find some equilibrium like in there. You can't go one way or the other, but, um, I certainly seem to benefit when I like take a moment to remember that like just how, how fundamentally strange this is that we're even here and talking and, um, you know, I, I feel like I sound like a college freshman taking bong hits in his dorm room. <laughs> um, do you understand what I'm talking about? I mean, is it relatable? yeah? Answer really, college freshman. We're like we're we're stone. <laughs> we're talking about really deep things. We're listening to like Bach's well-tempered clavier played by Glenn Gould, and we're we we are definitely you know pass me the weed and all that. And then then I would say you know the the corny discovery that I've made is walking and. And that's really stupid. I won't say it's stupid. I'll say it's grand. That I think that that when I am walking, or it doesn't have to be purposive walking with a destination, but that walking produces an intelligence that is more intelligent than stationary intelligence. And um, you know, I mean, we all we, it's, it's kind of common sense that like you need to move to think but i do a lot we i do a lot of sitting or whatever and i just i think that there's something that happens when i walk that that um thinking without concepts can become activated because there's a there's a pulse of forward somewhat dumb movement foot after foot pressing down and a kind of auto something automatic takes over that frees the mind from one form of thinking and I'm, you know, it's striking me. This is pandemic thinking. I'm more aware of it now because I usually swim as close to every day as I can. And I haven't gone swimming since mid March. And so I am always aware of that. I'm stuck in, I'm stuck away from water and that, that the kind of dumb movement ahead that swimming provides, I'm finding more in, in mere walking I love to walk. I've been a hiker and walker my whole adult life, and I couldn't agree more. I don't understand how people can live totally sedentary lives and still be functional and like producing literature and 
um, like for me too, it's like mood management. I don't know if that has any, um, like correlation for you between swimming and walking. Like if I don't move, I'm not a happy camper. I have to do something. Yeah. I mean, swimming is the best mood equalizer. I mean, that's just, there's nothing like swimming. Walking doesn't do it quite for me the way swimming does, because swimming is also that utter immersion in a sense of weightlessness and maybe even of in, of infancy or of uh, freedom. I feel, you know, very at home in a bathing suit in water if it's slightly warm. I feel, I just feel um, fluent. Where do you swim? I swim, I'm in the building I live in in Manhattan there is a swimming pool in the basement, which is why I live in that building. Oh, It's a really, really big, grand building called London Terrace. And it's a block long, and a lot of people live in it. Huh. That's, is that rare to have a swimming pool? It's really, really rare. That's fantastic. I mean, I, just to have that outlet, especially if the weather's bad, you can just go downstairs. Yep. It's heaven heaven the pool used to be closed on wednesdays for repair which was a major sense of depression like a a gulf in the middle of the week um but now once once this pandemic ends the pool will be open i just unspeakable joy something i'm realizing about your interviewing style brad that is fascinating you remind me um even though i can't see your face but you remind me in in your style very much of a very good a very good portrait photographers really yeah you have a you have your i don't know if this is a conscious thing that you do or if it's just but that you have a way of partly through the length of the conversation and the way the the kinds of things you ask of um relaxing the person so they start to not sound like they're being interviewed that's the whole that's the whole idea and i I think like uh i am grateful to hear you say portrait just the word portrait because that's truly i think what i'm aiming for is is trying to create in these conversations a portrait of the person that i'm talking with that is close to accurate and has like a measure of depth and surprise to it so thank you no, it's true. I'm thinking of the a couple of photographers. One is Timothy Greenfield Sanders, who has taken a couple of pictures of me in the past. And he, the experience is you go to his house and he has he makes you lunch or whatever. You hang out with him and maybe there's somebody else there. The day I was first day I was there, there was Karen Finley. Another day there was a porn actor, Michael Lucas, that he was photographing. You kind of hang out and it feels a little glamorous, but you wonder well. When when is he going to take my picture? And you get a little bored, maybe, but you feel it's a nice house. And then when he actually takes the picture, it doesn't take very long. Uh, though he uses a really old-fashioned camera, and he has to go underneath a black hood, and it's a very elaborate kind of picture taking. But he can only take a few of them, um, and that doesn't take. But you, but by the time he takes your picture, you're really relaxed. And the other is a, a guy named Bob Giard or Robert Giard, G-I-A-R-D, who did a whole project on lesbian and gay and, and bi and trans writers. And he took my picture in 1992. And I remember also he came to New Haven where I lived then. I picked him up at the train station. He hung out with me for like a long time. And there was always a sense of, well, when is he going to take my picture? And by the time he did, I think I was almost sleepy. But that created the right mood for a very dreamy portrait 
So Wayne, what are what are some films in the modern era that are filmmakers or films that you really admire? I'm just curious. What What do you mean by the mo- like? What constitutes the modern era? Past twenty years. Like, okay, past like, twenty years. Like directors, directors, yes. actors, filmmakers. You know, working today that you feel like have really stood out to you. Okay, I love. And I hope I get all the names. Say all the Francois Ozon. I don't know who that is. I'm searching Francois my mind. Francois Ozon. Okay, now I am googling just to make sure I got it right because you can you can just edit out this part, right? No, we'll just keep okay. this in. I like the googling. It's it's nice. Okay, like... Francois Ozon. Francois Ozon. Yeah, absolutely. He made, for example, Swimming Pool. Oh, I saw with that. Charlotte Rampling, which is a masterpiece. I love that movie. He is so good. He is Francois Ozon. Let's just see what other Francois Ozon films are movies. He is a totally great filmmaker. Um, Under the Sand, Potiche, um, Eight Women, Eight Women, I adore. Really, really, really love, really love his films. I love Almodovar, Almodovar, Pedro Almodovar. I've seen every one of his films as they came out ever since Law of Desire. And he is, he is the, the very best. I feel like there's a line between uh, Almodovar and uh, the Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Oh, very, very similar. For, uh, a sense of the farcicalness and the melodramatic hyper-lushness of everyday emotion. And the sense also that you could sort of spin out of one identity or one family tree into another. That you're just, And that gets more and more um, Baroque in, in each of Almodovar's films that, that just what you think of as the cast of characters molds mid film into something totally other. There's like a buried, uh, they're buried identities that emerge with kind of spectacular shock value later in a film. And okay. Other filmmakers I really love in the last 20 years. I loved a very unsurprising opinion, but I loved parasite. Oh, the, uh, the, the, the uh, Oscar winner. Yeah. I thought that was really like a perfect film. Um, I love um, I love the films of Peggy Awesh, um, a very independent um, and brilliant filmmaker. I love the films of Sue Friedrich, S.U., um, Sink or Swim, Gently Down the Stream. I really love my favorite filmmaker. Uh, two of my favorite filmmakers of all time died this year recently Agnes Varda mm-hmm. and Donamikas. And in some way, at the moment, they are my two favorite filmmakers. What was the second one? I think you broke up. A... Oh, uh, Jonas Mikas. Oh, Jonas Mikas. And Agnes Varda. Got it. Jonas Mikas. I also love. Gadar, and um, even though I mostly know his earlier films, I've been actually watching them, all his films from the 60s during the pandemic. His, uh, his maybe his most recent or one of his most recent films, The Image Book, is a masterpiece. Hmm. Um, yeah, I'm thinking, you know what, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of uh, Almodovar, I'm thinking of Parasite, I'm thinking of like the films that I've seen that we have in common. 
and I'm thinking of this, like just to tie it back to your work and to the concerns of your literary work is this idea of play. And mm-hmm. I feel like that is very evident in the, in the films in question. You know, you can really feel, I don't know, I, I think of Parasite in particular, like, wow, this guy's just going for it. You know, like yep. you can, yep. f- you can like, kind of feel the filmmaker having fun which isn't always the case. And I think that's the same could be said about literature, you know, where you can really feel like you can almost hear the writer laughing sometimes uh, behind the pages. But, um, you know, that's, I think that maybe is the exception rather than the rule. So uh, am I on, am I barking up the right tree here? I mean, is that, is that kind of what you're responding to? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love, um, well, I mean, I love melodrama and I like uh, a certain preposterous unrealizable emotional scenario made flesh through the artifice of cinema it's why i love opera um because of how uh, emotions that are i mean real emotions but that maybe are too um too dangerous to ever actually want to put into action can be incarnated with extraordinary extraordinary volume and with extraordinary acoustic penetration. But I wanted to say about a film that I'm really interested now in the tradition of um, artist films and films that maybe don't even have people in them, but the tradition of Stan Brakhage and Carolee Schneeman. It's kind of, I'm late to that festival, Hollis Frampton. um, You know, I I, I went to film school at the University of Colorado when Stan Brakhage was there. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, like, it was totally accidental. Like I wanted to be a film major. I was just kind of like a pot smoking neo hippie at 18 and wanted to be a film major. Cause I thought I wanted to storytell, you know, and I wound up in this film school, like totally unbeknownst to me that was essentially helmed by the greatest art filmmaker or one of the great art filmmakers of all time. And, uh, it was kind of a lucky accident. He, you know, his, his hand painted films are extraordinary. I agree. I absolutely agree, and I'm getting into like Robert Beavers, um, and it, I mean it's a whole, it's a rich, rich world. I finally read P. Adam Sidney's book Visionary Cinema, and um, yeah, how lucky for you that you studied with Stan Brakhage. I was friendly with Carolee Schneeman, who had worked with him, and and it, it, whose film um, Fuses, which is where she she films herself having sex with her then lover James Tenney the composer and paints on the film and um it's the most uh the most um oh tender and and coloristically magical evocation of human intimacy and of loving one's own body that i've ever seen yeah well it's, no, it's like uh stan brackage's window water baby moving i want to say it's like the first birth film yeah, uh, you yeah. know, and it's like I think because we have grown up in this age of, uh, you know, uh, studio produced cinema, you know, where you're you're watching narrative films in theaters, and I guess now you're you're streaming them on your television or whatever. I, I guess it could be. It was easy for me to lose sight of the fact that that like that was hardly the limit of the of the um, media. You, like you could yeah. you can t- do a lot with a camera. It doesn't always have to be narrative linear storytelling. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and you know, it definitely expanded my sense of possibility. And I also just love, like, it's sort of like, uh, has something similar. Um, it has something in common with my love of, of say poet, poets and poetry 
where mm-hmm. somebody who's making the kinds of films that Stan Brakhage was making is really just pursuing their own vision and their own bliss um, in a really like fearless and admirable way. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and- oh, I totally do. You know, you know, Brad. I'm teaching this now. The semester's over, but this last semester, I taught a class called Poem Encounters Film, a graduate course, and we read poems and we saw experimental films, including Stan Brakhage and uh, uh, dozens of others. And it, the, the the attempt was to see where the the kinds of personal making, the intimate making that go into poetry writing can happen in cinema with uh, handmade cinema in a way or, or uh, do-it-yourself cinema with that may be brief, uh, low, low, low budget, um, non-narrative, but it could be narrative, you know, that whole tradition. And it's for somebody like me who um, maybe in literature and in visual art have had esoteric and avant-garde tastes, but in film have really gone the Hollywood route loving stars the way I do. So cinema for me has always been about the movie star to find this other tradition finally where it's it's not about the star, though there are stars of underground cinema as well, but where it's about the the how uh, the camera is an instrument of writing. And it's uh, it, somebody once said somebody, some famous film theorist in France years ago said like uh, cine stylo or something like that, like the st- the, the pen camera yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense to me in fact that the course that you're describing i'm thinking like wow what a what a great way to put together a collection of poems is to just go through experimental film and when you when you stumble upon one that you really respond to like write a poem out of it it feels like it feels like something it feels like there's a synergy or like a deep relationship between those two things that i think most poets probably don't realize and, and most experimental filmmakers might not realize but it's a rich world that um, is is undermined, like hyphenated. Yeah. Like it's not mined you know, enough. But also the thing I love, the kinds of films I love are portrait films. I'm thinking of Shirley Clark's Portrait of Jason, which is phenomenal, or the more famous portrait films of the Maisels. Um, but really, Portrait of Jason, Shirley Clark's film where she just has this guy in a room talking for 12 hours. It's controversial because <laughs> she gets him drunk. And he's black and she's white and there are power dynamics and things that that are perhaps problematic. But it's also a, a phenomenal and I think um, faithful, faithful, faithful to uh, Jason's genius, the genius of this um, performer wh- whom she allows a star vehicle of, the, of this portrait. So, so Brad, I'm going to ask you a question. Um, my boyfriend is texting me right now, and he's saying, "Please come down to dinner." Oh my God! Well, listen, I've kept you. I've kept you almost two hours. This is just is that been... okay? Do we have enough material? I don't want to lose. Uh, if you, if there's, I can just tell, give him a notion of like, are we going to talk for like? Just what's no, your sense? No, I'm truly just enjoying this, and I'm just taking okay. your time. So I'm going to let you eat okay. dinner. <laughs> okay. Okay. You are very sweet. Okay. Um, but um, listen, I promised him it would be like an hour, and I lost track of time. And now he's just when I'm getting texts saying that he's very hungry. Yeah, I don't no. want him to get in the, in the way of my stardom, though. And if I think this podcast is is going to make me, uh, this is it. This, this is, is it. it. This is going to. This is you will be. You won't even be able to leave your house after this I, goes live. <laughs> so I just want to say before I finish recording, uh, what a joy it has been to talk with you after being uh, kind of aware of you and your work for all these years. 
uh, really enjoyed the essay collection. I always ask people at the end if you know you're working on the next thing. Is there something that you're writing right now that we can look forward to? Yeah, I have a, a book actually of fables or short stories coming out um, next year in uh, maybe February or March from Semio Texts in L.A. It's called the book is called The Cheerful Scapegoat. And it's there. I could call them short stories, but I like calling them fables because they're not plausible. They're very poem like um, they're very funny and quite surreal and very much based on flights of linguistic fancy. Excellent. Well, Wayne, thank you so much for uh, talking to me for nearly two hours. Uh, I wish you uh, good health and happiness. Hopefully you'll get a chance to swim when the weather gets like r- warm. Can you swim around there? Maybe you can jump in a lake. Or I can something. find a hole. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, nice to talk to you. Nice to nice meet to you. Nice to talk to you too. Okay, folks, there you go. That is Wayne Kustenbaum. His new essay collection is called Figure It Out. It's available from Soft Skull Press. You can find him online at waynekustenbaum.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Camp Marmalade. He's on Instagram, too. He's got a good Instagram. Check it out. Wayne Kustenbaum. Again, the new essay collection is called Figure It Out, available from Soft Skull. Go get it immediately. If you like this program, please support this program. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this show is free. More than 650 episodes. It's all there for you for free. Support the show at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget, too, you can get other people gear. If you want a t-shirt or a sweatshirt or even a tank top during this summer season, you can, uh, you can find that stuff. Just go to otherppl.com, the show's website. There's a link in the sidebar for merch. The Other People podcast has its own official app. It is free. Go get the app. It's available wherever apps are available. Wherever apps are available. It's a good app. You know what I mean. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Coming up on Wednesday, my guest is Genevieve Hudson, making her triumphant return to the program, her second appearance. Genevieve Hudson coming up on Wednesday. Stay tuned. I'm recording this just like an hour after uh, Trump commuted uh, Roger Stone's sentence. It's just the worst. Just these people are just the fucking worst. Can I just say that? I don't want to try, I don't want to mar Wayne's episode with uh, political darkness, but my God, it just never stops, does it? It never stops. We're through the looking glass. We have been for a long time. This has got to stop. It's got to stop. It never stops, but it's got to stop. We got to make it stop. Register to vote. Register your friends to vote. Get people excited about engaging. It's the only way anything's going to change. Sign up for a mail-in ballot, whatever it takes. Vote. All right? (laughs) 